bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. We got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. He doesn't have a bipartisan bill. Nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Nevergradic, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, July 30th, 2013. I'll start this week's podcast with an update on tax reform, including responses to last week's deadline to submit to the Senate Finance Committee a list of which tax provisions should be added back to a blank slate tax code. Senators Max Bach and Ron Ash asked for that list, and there were 98 senators to potentially respond. Then, in this week's New Market Tax Credit section, I'll review the details of the highly anticipated Notice of Allocation Availability for the next round of New Market Tax Credit applications. In our historic tax credit discussion, I'll review two topics related to conservation easements. First, an amicus brief filed by the National Trust for Historic Preservation in the White House hotel case. And second, legislation introduced in the House Representatives to extend an expiring provision related to conservation easements. I also have state-level news from Rhode Island, where the state's historic tax credit has been revived after five years of inactivity. Then, in our long buzzing tax credit segment, I'll discuss the new rule released last week by HUD for the Home Investment Partnerships Program. And finally, in our Renewable Energy Tax Credit discussion, I'll alert listeners to an important hearing scheduled for this week about energy tax policy. I'll also provide an update about renewable energy generating capacity year-to-date and share the top 12 states for solar as ranked by a new report. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, yesterday, House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp and Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus made the second stop on their nationwide tour to gather public input on tax reform. For this week's trip, they visited two separate small businesses in the Philadelphia area. The focus of the trip was how a simpler and fairer tax code could help small business and families boost the economy, create jobs, and improve wages. The first visit was to Mrs. G's TV and Appliances, which is a third-generation family-owned business that's been around for more than 75 years. The second visit was to the Hub Centers for Meeting and Collaboration, which provides fully equipped meeting space as well as technology and business support services. Now let's turn to the Senate response to the call for tax reform proposals. Last week, the deadline passed for senators to respond to the request extended by Chairman Baucus and Ranking Member Orrin Hatch in the Dear Colleague letter I've discussed in recent podcasts. As a reminder, The letter asked senators to submit proposals by July 26th supporting tax provisions they believed should be included in a revised tax code. At the time of this recording, a preliminary estimate of the response to the invitation suggests that a number of senators 
took advantage of the opportunity to advocate for various tax provisions. There are some reports that over 60 letters were submitted to the Senate Finance Committee. Now, some of the letters are already public, and it will be interesting to see how many become public within the next few weeks and months. The 18 that I'm aware of are from the following senators. Senators Begich, Cardin, Casey, Crapo, Donnelly, Enzi, Flake, Hagan, King, Landrew, McCaskill, Murphy, Nelson, Rockefeller, Rubio, Sanders, Shelby, and Warren. These letters will be posted on our website. Now, Republican leadership also sent a general letter. The Republican leadership letter was signed by Republican leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Whip, John Cornyn, Conference Chairman John Thune, Policy Committee Chairman John Barrasso, Conference Vice Chair Roy Blunt, National Republican Senatorial Committee Chairman Jerry Moran, and the following Republican Finance Committee Senators. Chuck Grassley, Mike Crapo, Pat Roberts, Mike Enzi, Richard Burr, Johnny Isaacson, Rob Portman, and Pat Toomey. Conversely, we know at least one senator who definitely did not submit a letter. That would be Majority Leader Harry Reid. Last week, Senator Reid told reporters that he had not read the Dear Colleague letter, nor would he respond to the invitation to participate in the Senate Finance Committee's activity. Now, as I mentioned, as copies of these letters and proposals become available, we are going to post them online. The, the location is www.novaco.com slash hottopics. And by the way, if you're aware of a public letter not listed above, please email it to cpas at novaco.com and we'll get it up on our website. Now, initial reviews of the letters shows that many were quite general. However, some were fairly specific particularly those senators that have introduced tax legislation in the past, if they had a specific letter, they often express support for their previous position. I will note that the historic tax credit did make a cameo in a number of letters. While other tax credits, like the local housing tax credit and the new market tax credit, received few, if any, mentions. Now, in the days and weeks leading up to the July 26th deadline that passed last week, Affordable housing and community development professionals were actively supporting the tax provisions that have been essential to helping create and expand the availability of affordable housing as well as revitalizing communities. For example, a coalition of trade associations for America's real estate industry circulated a letter that called for senators to support what the group describes as, quote, certain foundational elements of our present income tax system are vital to not only the real estate industry, but also to our overall economy and its future well-being. Specifically, the letter asks for support to ensure that a number of specific features are preserved and enhanced in any reformed income tax system, including the low-income housing tax credit. The letter does warn that discontinuing the housing tax credit would jeopardize the ability to meet the growing need for affordable housing across America. Now, similarly, a coalition of affordable housing and economic development groups signed and submitted a letter to Senators Bacchus and Hatch asking that the low-income housing tax credit and new market tax credit be preserved in a reform tax code. The letter details how the housing tax credit and new market tax credit help grow the economy, make the tax code fairer, and effectively promote important policy objectives. That letter was co-signed 
by a monumental number of supporters. It's reported that the number signed is more than 1,200 organizations. A copy of that letter can be found online at www.novaco.com slash hot topics. Simply click on the tax reform link. And maybe you can count the actual number of organizations and tell us exactly what the number is. Similarly, Smart Growth America and a coalition of real estate developers and investors last week published a report that presents a series of proposed reforms to federal real estate programs. The group says that taken together, these reforms could save the federal government an estimated $33 billion per year while updating outdated programs to achieve better outcomes for households, communities, and taxpayers. The report proposes policy changes that include preserving and increasing the long-term housing tax credit as well as improving the Rehabilitation Tax Credit or the Historic Tax Credit. Regarding the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, the report says that the existing credit is not enough to meet growing demand. As such, Smart Growth America recommends making the credit's 9% minimum credit rate permanent, enacting a floor rate for the acquisition credit at no less than 4%, and increasing the credit's annual allocation by 50%. I think they're channeling the Bipartisan Housing Commission report on that recommendation. Regarding the historic rehabilitation tax credit, the report says that the credit's current scope limits its effectiveness. To address this, Smart Growth America recommends increasing the credit to 15% of rehabilitation credits. This is the 10% credit up to 15. Broadening eligibility to include project-wide redevelopment costs, making residential buildings eligible for the current 10, but proposed to be 15% credit, and changing the age criteria so that any building over 50 years will be eligible for the credit. As you can see, there is ample support for these important tax credit programs and an abundance of evidence to support their continued existence. But for now, we'll all have to stay tuned to see how that translates in the future in the tax code. In new market tax credit news, last week, the City of Fun released, as I'm sure you heard, through our Twitter accounts, breaking news, emails, or other sources, that the City of Fun released a Notice of Allocation Availability, or NOAA, that officially opens the next round of competition under the New Market Tax Credit Program. One of the biggest developments was that the NOAA combines the calendar year 2013 and 2014 rounds. This makes $8.5 billion in tax credit allocation authority tentatively available, and certainly now available for application at least. The total of $8.5 billion is dependent on congressional authorization of $5 billion that was requested in the President's proposed budget for 2014. That $5 billion is in addition to the $3.5 billion that was already authorized by Congress for 2013. The City of Fund says it combined the 2013 and 2014 rounds in order to achieve cost and efficiency savings, realign the program calendar, and prevent an anticipated deficit of available new market tax credits. The City of Five Fund also says if congressional authority for the calendar year 2014 new market tax credit allocations is not enacted by early fiscal year 2014, then the City of Five Fund will proceed with making $3.5 billion in awards for calendar year 2013. At that point, the City of Five Fund says it would likely consider combining the 2014 and 2015 new market tax credit authority Again, of course, pending congressional approval.
At this time, the CDFI fund says it anticipates opening the 2015 round of the New Market Tax Credit Program in the summer of 2014 with award decisions in the spring of 2015. Meanwhile, here are the key dates for the current application round. The CDFI fund will conduct two one-hour conference calls to answer applicant questions. These two conference calls will be held on July 30th and again on August 1st. Allocation applicants are not, that are not yet certified as CDEs must submit an application for certification as a CDE on or before August 9th. Novogratin Company will host a webinar on August 14th, and applications are due September 18th, followed by investor letters, signature pages, and organization charts that are associated with the application being uploaded, uploaded by September 20th. And then, prior round awardees that submitted an application will have to meet their QEI issuance requirements by December 31st of this year. New market tax rate application materials and resources are available on the CDFI Fund's website at www.cdfifund.gov. Application information has also been posted online at www.newmarketscredits.com. And members of the New Market Tax Credit Working Group will receive highlighted versions of the various documents in terms of what changed from the year before, as well as a Microsoft Word version of the application that's useful as you're drafting your and preparing your application for submission online. And then once all the applications have been submitted, I encourage you to join Novogratz and Company in New Orleans for the Novogratz New Markets Tax Credit Conference. At this conference, we'll discuss the outlook for congressional authorization of the 2014 New Market Tax Credit Allocation Authority, as well as a number of other matters. This conference is going to be held on October 10th and 11th, and it'll be the perfect opportunity to regroup and prepare for the next step in the award process. In historic preservation news, we have an update to a story we've been following over the past several years. The National Trust for Historic Preservation filed an amicus brief on July 10th in support of White House Hotel LP's appeal of a U.S. tax court ruling that substantially reduced the value of a facade preservation easement. In 2008, a tax court ruling reduced from $7.4 million to $1.15 million the value of White House Hotel's 1997 charitable contribution deduction for a facade easement on the historic Maison Blanc building in New Orleans. The IRS had conducted an appraisal and said the valuation should only consider the effect on the building and not the adjacent Crest building. Additionally, the IRS did not use the income approach evaluation. After the tax court ruled in favor of the IRS, the White House Hotel Partnership appealed the decision to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. In 2010, the appeals court reversed the tax court's ruling and remanded the case for redetermination of the allowed deduction and assessed penalties. In October 2012, the tax court rejected White House's $7.5 million valuation donation again and instead adopted a $1.8 million valuation provided by an IRS expert. The tax court also imposed a 40% penalty under tax code section 6662A. White House Hotel LP then filed a second appeal to the Fifth Circuit, saying that the tax court had failed to follow the appellate court's detailed instructions for revaluation. In the amicus brief that it filed earlier this month, the National Trust supported White House's valuation that incorporates the Crest Building and used a cash flow income approach 
that reduces future income due to the restriction on additional hotel rooms. The National Trust said that the IRS's expert, quote, departed in several fundamental and material ways from generally accepted appraisal practices, close quote. The National Trust argued that if the tax court decision stands, it leaves easement appraisers with the impossible choice of following generally accepted appraisal practices and risking an adverse tax court decision or following the tax court standards and ignoring professional standards of the appraisal profession. The National Trust brief is an important show of support for developers who depend on facades with donations for historical rehabilitation. We'll keep you updated on the case's progress in future podcasts. In the meantime, you can find information related to the case so far online at www.historictaxcredits.com. In other easement news, Representatives Mike Thompson and Jim Gerlach have introduced a bipartisan bill that would make permanent certain conservation easement provisions that are otherwise scheduled to expire, particularly as they relate to limitations on deductions of easements against adjusted gross income. The bill is H.R. 2807, entitled the Conservation Easement Incentive Act of 2013. A similar bill that proposed to make similar changes was introduced earlier this year in the Senate by Senator Baucus. That Senate bill has 12 co-sponsors and has been in the Senate Finance Committee since March. You can find a copy of the bill as soon as it becomes available online at www.historictaxcredits.com. Now let's turn to the state of Rhode Island. The Rhode Island Historic Preservation Tax Credit has been reopened thanks to enactment of the state's fiscal year 2014 budget. Rhode Island's Historic Tax Credit Program provides a 20% credit for qualified rehabilitation expenditures, those those that are incurred after July 3rd. Last week, the Rhode Island Division of Taxation released the application for the Historic Preservation Tax Credit Program, as well as an emergency regulation that outlines the program's new rules and provides guidance on the application process. Applications should be submitted on or after August 1st. Now, the Division of Taxation will place applications in a queue, and if demand for credits exceeds supply, the Division of Taxation will hold a drawing to determine which applications will be considered for credits. To learn more about the program or to download the rules, go to www.tax.ri.gov. And, as always, if you have questions about working with the Rhode Island State Historic Credit or the Historic Tax Credit in your state, please call my partner, Tom Bosha, in our Cleveland, Ohio office. In low-income housing tax credit news, we have an update from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Last week, HUD released a final rule for the Home Investment Partnerships Program. This new rule represents the first major revision of the Home Program regulations since 1996. Now, according to the rule summary, the new rule updates definitions and adds new terminology, modifies eligibility requirements for community housing development organizations, or CHOTOs, establishes deadlines for project completion, strengthens conflicts of of interest provisions, and clarifies several existing home regulatory provisions. Much of this proposed rule that was released last week was proposed for comment in December of 2011. However, since the proposed rule was published, HUD has made some changes in response to the comments it received, which NCSHA reports totaled more than 300 comments. In general, the provisions in the final rule will be applicable to projects for which home funds are committed on or after August 23rd, 
HUD has posted section-by-section -section summaries of the rule, and it's also expected to provide information via training courses and webcasts. In the meantime, you can find a copy of the rule online at www.hudresourcecenter.com. And if there are particular aspects of the rule that you think do need to be changed or otherwise are quite significant, send us an email at cpas.novaco.com. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, tomorrow, Wednesday, July 31st at 2.30 p.m., the Senate Finance Committee's Energy, Natural Resources, and Infrastructure Subcommittee is scheduled to hold a hearing entitled Powering Our Future, Principles for Energy Tax Reform. The subcommittee is chaired by Senator Debbie Stabenow, and the subcommittee's ranking member is Senator John Cornyn. At the time of this recording, the witness list includes Phyllis Catino, Director of Clean Energy with the Pew Charitable Trust, Dan Riker, Executive Director of the Steyer-Taylor Center for Energy Policy at Stanford University, Will Coleman, a partner at OnRamp Capital, and Margot Thorning, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist for the American Council for Capital Formation. I'll report in any notable statements or developments in next week's podcast. Next, we have an update on energy production so far this year in the United States. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission found that renewable energy sources are outpacing coal, oil, and nuclear sources combined in terms of new generating capacity for the year to date. In the first six months of 2013, renewable energy sources provided nearly 25% of all new U.S. electrical generating capacity installed. Here's the generating capacity among renewables. Solar, 979 megawatts. Wind, 959 megawatts. Biomass, 116 megawatts. Water, 76 megawatts. Geothermal, 14 megawatts. Together, renewable energy sources have a total of 2,144 megawatts. By comparison, coal, oil, and nuclear have only 1,605 megawatts combined. The rest of the nation's generating capacity installed came from natural gas, nearly 5,000 megawatts. And finally, let's close this week's podcast with a quick review of a report that highlights what the report calls a solar energy boom. The report was published by Environment America Research and Policy Center. It ranks the top 12 solar states. Now, these rankings are per capita rankings. Number one, is it much of a surprise, Arizona? nor is number two, Nevada, or number three, Hawaii. Next, it starts to get a little bit more interesting. Four, New Jersey, five, New Mexico, six, California, seven, Delaware, eight, Colorado, nine, Vermont, 10, Massachusetts, 11, North Carolina, and 12, the state of Maryland. Now, the report emphasizes that it's not necessarily just the availability of sunlight that makes states solar leaders but also the degree to which state and local governments have created effective public policy for the development of the solar industry. States with more homeowners and businesses that are going solar share these strong policies as follows. 11 of the 12 have strong net metering policies. This allows customers to offset electric bills with on-site solar and receive compensation for the excess electricity that they provide to the grid. 11 of the 12 states have renewable electricity standards, 
These standards require utilities to provide a minimum amount of their power from renewable sources. And 10 of the 12 states have strong statewide interconnection policies. Now, in addition to highlighting state policies, the report's authors urge the federal government to continue key tax credits for solar energy, like the investment tax credit. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.